This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Stunners, shocks, shoulders, showmanship. We've had it all in the first week of the U.S. Open, and at the halfway stage, I am delighted to be joined by my U.S. Open radio colleague, Mike Cation, as we look back over a momentous first week and discuss what all of this means, or at least try to, as we head into week two. I'm Brian Clark. Mike, how are you? I'm good. It's hard to make sense of an entire week of action, but we'll do our best today. Before we talk about the action, this is a grand slam. It's one of four. It's New York. It's the big stage. But there's so much off the court here to talk about. What's the best thing you've eaten at oh, this U.S. Open? It's no doubt. It's the bulgogi at the Korean food booth. It is fantastic. A nice mix of beef, kale, rice, and corn. A little bit of a tang to it as well. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's a little on the pricey side, about $16, but a perfect size bowl that doesn't overwhelm you with flavor while also filling you immensely. And I, I, it's the one thing you have to try if you come to New York. We clearly have been doing a lot of radio because that was such an on-the-money description. (laughs) I can actually taste that right now. Now, the reason why that's so appealing to you, it's gluten-free, right? Correct. Let's talk about Novak Djokovic. Yes. The world number one. (laughs) The fake gluten-free. I'm the real gluten-free. Try the OG of gluten-free, Mike (laughs) Cation here. But for Novak Djokovic, and it's Sunday evening as we sit here. He's going to play Stan Wawrinka in a couple of hours. But... If there's one word I would almost say to describe Djokovic in this tournament, it's almost ornery. He's looked yes. a little bit angry a lot of the time he's been on court. I think that's exactly right. Obviously, the left shoulder is an issue for him in some way, shape, or form. He is loath to discuss when he has those injuries, uh, including the right elbow in Cincinnati when I was there. On top of it, he's been snarling at the crowd. There were a couple of guys in his match against Dennis Kudla who were in bathrobes. And he was actually swearing at them at one point. Then after the match, took pictures with them. But you are absolutely right. He gets through three matches in straight sets, all three of them. And yet, he's looked a little bit just jerky almost. But I think that's the best Djokovic. I don't know about you. I agree. That's when he really started to break through here, when he beat Federer by... Anytime he takes the court in ash against Federer, he is not going to have the crowd on his side. When he finally embraced that 2010, 2011 with those back-to-back years after some heartbreaking losses to Roger, that's when he really blossomed and started to turn in the seasons that have made him what he is today. I cannot agree with you more that that is the best Djokovic. That being said, he's got a tough test tonight against another Swiss player in Stan Wawrinka. But as far as the shoulder goes and the elbow, I I loved what he said the other night when he was pressed about it in the pre-match interview. He just said, I'm here, let's play. Because that, I think, is... For all the talk that you can get caught up in with injuries and how it's going to affect somebody, for the player to take the post and be on court, they're obviously in shape to play, and that's exactly what it was the other night. And what was most impressive to me is how clean he was striking the ball off of the ground. There was precision, there was determination in every single shot. He was toying with Dennis Kudla at times. Maybe the serve wasn't 100%, maybe it wasn't hitting 125, 130 every time, but he was right there at every moment where he needed to be and made Kudla move side to side. And Obviously a tougher task against Stan Wawrinka. We'll see if he's able to survive, and it's certainly an interesting quarterfinal set up here, potentially with Medvedev. Yeah, we'll talk about Medvedev in a moment, but 
Somebody else who's been very successful here, the five-time champion Roger Federer. Yeah. It's almost like a tale of two tournaments for him. With the first two matches yeah. here against Sumit Nagal yeah. and Demir Jumer, he loses the first set. You're thinking, oh no, what's going on? Right. Then he spends less than 90 minutes on court in both his third and fourth round matches against Dan Evans and then David Goffin a bit earlier today. There's some Grigor Dimitrov fans <laughs> behind us. We'll talk about him in a moment. Including Grigor Dimitrov. Yes. Yeah, he is also a, a fan as well. But I want to give you my theory as okay. to why Federer's now looked Federer-like. He's playing guys he has seen so many times before in Evans and Goffin, not players like Nagal and Jumer, who he might not be as familiar with. Do you buy that at all? Well, he's familiar with Jumer. Right. He's played him a couple times. I, I completely understand your point. I think there's a little bit more of a scout in, in terms of the, the entire team saying, okay, let's let's see what we need to do against Dan Evans. Let's see what we need to do against David Goffin. And I don't think that was the case, certainly not against Sumit Nagal. In fact, he admitted in his pre-match interview he'd not really seen anything from this guy. Uh, Jumhur a little bit more about just focusing and getting locked into his style. And I think that's what he's really been doing, working himself into this tournament, working himself into good form because he certainly didn't have it in Cincinnati two weeks ago. Yeah, that one win over Juan Ignacio Landero, then that loss to Rublev, which yeah. is looking a bit better as it Rublev's is. been on a nice run here. We'll get to him in a bit. But as far as the other member of the big three, mm. I mean, can you come up with a question about Rafael Nadal? No. I guess the question is, has he gotten enough work in on court? Because he is into right. the fourth round, having played barely four hours, the unfortunate withdrawal the other night from Kokonakis, but Nadal has looked in fine form, and we knew coming in that the draw had already done him a few favors. Yeah, absolutely correct. I was really looking forward to that Thanasi Kokonakis match with Nadal because I thought that was going to be a real test for Rafa. Um, but wins over John Millman, win over Hyun Chung, who had come through qualifying and frankly looked a little bit gassed. Will he have enough and, and will he be battle tested against Man Cilic, I think is the real question. You know the t determination is going to be there. I don't know. He maybe hasn't played uh, at that level quite yet that he needs to to go against a guy like Cilic. We'll see. Yeah, Cilic beat John Isner yes. on Saturday. We'll talk about that one in a little bit. But not in the big three, but somebody who is almost a co-equal favorite coming into this tournament is Daniil Medvedev. Off that summer he's had, the finals in Washington, the final yeah. in Montreal, then the breakthrough with the title, first Masters title in Cincinnati. But that raised a lot of questions. Okay, where is he physically after right. this summer? He cramped in his match against Hugo Delian. Then against Feliciano Lopez, it was a very different kind of energy. You called that match yeah. on US Open Radio, Mike Keisha. Can you try to very briefly explain what exactly we saw that night. The best way I was able to think of it is it was like a pro wrestling yeah, villain. That's exactly what I said on Twitter as well right afterwards. It was the heel turn, as they say, in pro wrestling. He was getting booed. He was uh, salty and angry in that first set, not happy with some line calls. He did get caught using the middle finger in a gesture towards the chair umpire, which he has been fined for. It was one of those moments where he just said, you know, I'm going to go full bad guy. It reminded me, like you said, the Russian bad guy in the 1980s in WWF. And it really fueled him. He started playing back to that form where he was at in Cincinnati. He had energy. He was able to get through in four sets. And he looked at top form considering all the physical issues. He's got a knee. He's got a groin. He looked fantastic. The crowd booing him, and he said afterwards, he just invited the boos at the end of the match and said, you guys, when you go to sleep tonight, just know you got me through this match. 
And Ben Rothenberg, the reporter from the New York Times, phrased it very well right afterwards. If somebody like Coco Goff had used that exact same phrasing and you hadn't seen what was happening, the theatrical scene, you would think that's a very inspirational quote saying thank you for the support tonight. But instead, the way it was going with these boos from thousands of fans was an amazing scene and one that just made me laugh more than anything. But the question is, yeah. and this is uh, 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, he is playing in a bit against Dominic Kupfer, so yeah. keep that in mind. But is he now committed to being the villain for the rest of this tournament and maybe beyond. Yeah, we'll see. It's a guy in Dominic Kupfer who people just don't know, frankly, at this level. A guy who's qualified, he's had an amazing summer, amazing run to potentially be in the top 100 for the first time in his career. So I don't know that there's going to be that huge fan support for Kupfer, but I do think because of the way that that match with Lopez went, I think there will be fans, even if they like Daniel Medvedev, they're going to go out and boo him. Yeah. So I think if he embraces it fully, I think it's really going to push him here, and especially once he goes up against potentially Djokovic or Vavrinka. And that's assuming he gets past Dominic Kupfer. Correct. Let's talk about him for a moment because yeah. you are the play-by-play -play voice of the challenger events here in the United States. So yep. you see, you've seen Dominic Kupfer a fair bit. He went and played college tennis in the U.S. Right. He went to Tulane down in New Orleans, and that setup seems to have worked well for him. What can a run like this, a summer like this, really, because he's had success at the challenger level, do for him catapulting back half of this year into 2020. It's always really hard when a guy makes their first breakthrough at a Grand Slam and makes a breakthrough into the top 100 for the first time. Some players are able to take it, catapult it to a different level. Um, Dan Evans is a guy who did, obviously, before the suspension, had a great run here at the U.S. Open back in 2013 and used it to get a really fantastic 2014-2015. Some other players really struggle with the success, and then they feel they should be at the 500 level, the Master Series level, week in, week out. And it's really about the mentality, the coaching staff. I think it's going to be a matter of finding a good schedule, mixing in challengers, mixing in 250s. You have to be able to sustain wins. It's one thing if you're able to get into those 500s, get into qualifying week in, week out. If you're not winning, it doesn't matter. So I think the coaching staff around him, Billy Heiser, Ryan Williams, they're going to have to make sure that he finds tournaments where he can pick up two wins before losing in the quarterfinals, or even just one win in a 250 before losing in the second round. That's the biggest question, is making sure you do have sustained success no matter what the level and the player accepting, hey, if I'm in a challenger, it's okay, I'm going to win. Brian Clark here with Mike Cash, and we are on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. And as we sit here Sunday afternoon, it's not often in any sort of tennis conversation you are talking about Dominic Kupfer before you talk about Nick Kyrgios, but that's exactly <laughs> what we're doing. And yeah. that sort of mirrors the way it was for Kyrgios here in this tournament. It was almost quiet by his standards. He was beaten pretty sad, not soundly, but it, it was a tight match. But Andre Rublev got him in a couple of tie breaks, and yeah. then he rolled from there. And is this just who Nick Kyrgios is? He's going to draw in the crowns. He's going to win the 500 events. But at that bigger stage, he just has not rose to the occasion. I was calling the match with Andre Rublev, and I speculated that I think Kyrgios would be fine in the best of five debate. He's fully in the best of three side. He doesn't really want or hasn't shown that want too often over the last couple of years to really go and fight for five hours, potentially. Um, he was quiet. He tried at times to be a little bit feisty, but against Rublev, it just wasn't there. And I, I, I do think it's a matter of maybe being away from home a little bit too long. Um, he has had some success. I think the blow up in Cincinnati kind of just took the wind out of his sails. 
I think it remains to be seen. This is who he is. This is the entertainer that Nick Kyrgios is. It is fun to watch. It's fun to call. I don't know about you, Brian. I, I have an enjoyable time watching him. Whether he has success at the Grand Slam level, I don't know that it necessarily matters for him, and I think that's fine. Yeah. If he wants to be the entertainer, that's great. And I, I think the charitable foundation that he mixes in as well, I love it. It's just a matter of, I think, fans having to accept that this is who he is. He's going to have some of these tournaments where it's a third-round exit, and that's who he is. I did the WTA event in the Bronx the week before they opened right. the new event there. He was up there 10 o'clock one morning doing a clinic with kids. Yeah. I mean, of course, there are going to be cameras out there, but that's not he's not doing it for the publicity. He's out there hitting with Correct. kids. He's having a good time. That's who he is. He's an entertainer. Earlier, before you and I sat down, Kyrgios actually came out without security, wearing a Chicago Bulls Lowry Markkinen jersey wow. of all jerseys to be wearing, and just walked out in the crowd taking pictures. That's who he is. He wants to be a good ambassador. And in terms of the off-the-court stuff, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, absolutely. So Nick, though, out of this tournament because of Andre Rublev. Rublev, I think, is regaining some of the momentum he built when he got to the quarterfinals here two years ago. And yes. for all the talk, we just talked about Medvedev. Karen Hachinov's had a nice summer. But for Rublev to reemerge here, I think we are really seeing what the potential that we saw two years ago is with him. And don't forget, he was a world junior number one back in 2014, a year after Nick Kyrgios was. He told me in Cincinnati when we sat down for a interview for ATP Tennis Radio that more than anything this year, it was about the mentality switch for him, realizing that he would have to beat players when he wasn't at his best, and now physically he's able to do it, had a stress fracture in his back last year. It's been the wrist issue this year. He's physically able to do it, and mentally what he's been working on with Fernando Vicente, his coach, he knows that if he has his B game, his C game, he's still right there. And it's just a matter of finding just enough. And that's what he was able to do in the two tiebreak sets against Nick Kyrgios. And then Kyrgios just wasn't there in the third. Yeah, he'll play Matteo Berrettini, who has very quietly worked his way through this draw with a win over Alexei Poprin in the third round. It's a very... This is a fantastic draw for Andre Rublev. After getting past Kyrgios, also beating Tsitsipas, obviously, in the opening round here. This is a fantastic draw. Potentially, if he gets past Berrettini to Gael Monfils in the quarterfinals, a guy who just went through an incredible five-setter as we sit down here with Shapovalov the night before, you have to favor Rublev in this area to get through to the semifinals. Yeah, he's got Berrettini, and then, as you say, a possible Monfils. But Pablo Andujar, yeah. who has going to be playing Gael Monfils, how about Pablo Andujar into the round of 16 for the first time ever at a major, very yes. successful clay court Correct. player. He's won two or three clay court challengers this year, but he's only played 10 hard court matches in 2019. Here he is in the fourth round of the U.S. Open. You always have these fantastic stories, don't you, of, of guys, and we have one on the women's side as well, Christy Ahn here uh, as well, who just have that finally, that breakthrough moment, and just the credit to the spirit, the competitive spirit of Pablo Andujar I watched the match a little bit against Alexander Bublik. He just has this joy that he is playing with right now and the appreciation for the moment. It's been really fun to watch. Somebody else on that side, this would be a semifinal opponent, a potential quarterfinal opponent for Rafael yep. Nadal, is Sasha Zverev. In a yes. couple last few years, we've talked about Zverev coming into this tournament as a player with an outside, outside shot to win it. Right. He obviously has not delivered at a slam. 2019's been something of a lost year, some off the court issues. He's only had one title. 
played two five-setters here in the first two rounds. That was always his undoing, but it almost had the feeling like this was good because 2019 has been such a lost year that just to play a five-set match and win it, which he did in the first round, then he beat Francis Tiafo, then Aliash Bedene, and guess what? For the first time ever, he's into the round of 16 here. Are we at the point where we can say this is salvaging his year, or do we still need to see another win or two? I don't know if you can in terms of the big picture where you thought he would be at the end of the year. Salvaging is uh, such a tough phrase to really define. Yeah. I think ultimately he's going to be judged by Grand Slam finals, Grand Slam titles. He's not there yet. That being said, I think you're absolutely right in terms of reclaiming what the potential is for Sasha Zverev. Absolutely, he's right there. Now, can he go just a little bit farther this week? He's got Diego Schwartzman in the fourth round, potentially Rafa Nadal or Marin Cilic, both champions of this event in the quarterfinals. I think more than anything, Brian, it's just a matter of building towards 2020. And I think that's the important thing. Some of those issues behind him now, including a, a coaching change, I think good things are going to happen, will continue to happen. He's still so young. I think more than anything, it's just that build towards 2020. You mentioned the people in that quarter. It's yeah. Brian Clark here with Mike Cation on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. It's Schwartzman, and then to play either Nadal or Chilich if he can get by Schwartzman. The reason why it's going to be those three is because Schwartzman beat Tennis Sandgren, yeah. Chilich beat John Isner. So that meant that by 9 o'clock on Saturday night, there were no American men left in the singles here, and that means the American Grand Slam drought for men's singles will extend into 2020. You've got to go back to 2003 when Andy Roddick won here for the last time. An American man won a major. With as involved as you are at the challenger level and at all levels of the game, really, what is your take on that? We've been in such a unique era, obviously. It's well documented, the big three, plus Andy Murray, the big four. Plus Stan. And plus Stan, no, absolutely. We've been in such a unique era. I don't think it's necessarily a, a totally negative thing that we haven't had that American breakthrough. That being said, I think 2020 and 2021 are going to be the years I need to see this next crop of Americans who we've been waiting on for the last couple of years. You didn't mention them there, but Tiafo. Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka are kind of leading the way of the younger Americans. It's time for one of them to be there. And I know that Francis obviously had a good run at the Australian this year as a quarterfinalist. Sangren had a quarterfinal appearance the year before and obviously Isner's gone very deep. It's time for one of them to make a semifinal or a final. And I mean that of the younger generation. I don't know that they're mentally ready for it. I think Taylor is probably the one who's closest um, I think Francis probably of, of those guys has had the best run so far. But I think it's time for them to just put all the distractions aside for a little bit and really make that deep run semifinal or final. And the next two years, it has to be there. Um, I, big picture, I, I want to see it, obviously, but I don't know that we're ready yet. And I don't know that a lot of players are ready yet to make that next transition. I think Medvedev is probably the closest. But who knows? I mean, how many young players who are the next big things in this sport? We just talked about Sasha Zverev. You mentioned Stefano Tsitsipas earlier. We'll yes. talk about them more in a bit, who just have not made that transition over to the sustained success Correct. deep in a Grand Slam. And it is a, it's almost a different sport. It is. And the mentality that you have to have to be able to do it over two weeks here, I haven't seen it from too many players who are able to do it in the best of five at the age of 23 and younger. So I, I'm willing to give these young Americans some time. But... It's getting to that point. 
And just one more thought before we move on to the other half of the draw. I wanted to go back to this one because talk about the young Americans, a lot of talk about the young Canadians coming into yeah, this tournament. Sure. And Denis Shapovalov, he beat Felix Auger-Aliassime somewhat, almost surprisingly, easily yes. in their first round match. They played her for the first round for the second year in a row. But I was impressed with Shapovalov in this last couple of weeks. It's been yes. a disappointing year, but now he's with Mikhail Eugenie on a trial basis, had a nice run in Winston-Salem, and then he gets to the third round here, loses a heartbreaker. I mean, you're go not going to see much better shot making than Malfis and Shapovalov. I think this is something that could he could build on moving forward. Absolutely right, Brian. I talked to him in Cincinnati and he said he needed to take a step back from the sport for a couple of weeks. Just go on a mental reset. A lot of these younger players are really dealing with that right now. 21, 22 years of age. They've been playing on the tour since they were 18 or 19. You talk about Francis Tiafo and Taylor Fritz as well. And you just sometimes need to take that step back and restart. This season is so long for these players, going 11 months. At that age, it's hard to do. And so I think more than anything for Shapovalov, he's going to need to figure out a good schedule that works for him. His body is still pretty frail. A lot of these 21, 22-year-olds, they, they have the frail body still. And I think that's fine. And I hope for him that he starts to build towards 2020 as well. And I wouldn't mind some of these players actually shutting down their seasons just a little bit earlier in October if they're not going to be in the, the, the finals at the end of the year or the next-gen finals, the NITO finals. Take a little bit of time off, prepare for the Australian Open. Yeah, Shapovalov was almost forced to do that last yes. year where he was just completely out of gas. And right. then you wonder how that impacted his build for 2019. But now to go about it with a different look and with a different voice perhaps on board in Eugenie, that could change things around going into the new year. The 2019 season, the story has been something of a horror story for somebody like Grigor Dimitrov. Yeah. Uh, horror in that he was drawing Stan Wawrinka ultimately what felt like every week back-to-back -back in Montreal and Cincinnati. <laughs> Fortunately for him, that did not happen here, and they are both still alive. Dimitrov already threw into the last eight. He just beat Alex Dimonor a bit earlier. Stan will play tonight as we sit here Sunday afternoon against Djokovic. Dimitrov, I, I caught some of that match earlier against Alex Dimonor. It's exactly what you expect from Dimonor, where he's going to run down every ball. He's going to put you in uncomfortable positions. But that has got to be a confidence-building win on what's got to be a massive run here for Dimitrov to try to salvage, there's that word again, something out of 2019. You talked about it, Brian, in the setup. He's had some bad luck in some of the draws, and sometimes when you have that bad luck, you get to make it up in one tournament. And I think you have to say for Dimitrov that this has been a bit of luck. Obviously, Borna Chorich was the seed, and it was potentially a second-round matchup. In fact, it was a second-round matchup, but it was a walkover with Chorich having to withdraw. That being said, he's here. He's won the matches that, yes, we all think he should have won. And that hasn't happened for him very much in, in 2019. So to be here, to be in the second week into the quarterfinals, no matter what happens against Roger Federer and the comparisons that he's had with Federer over the years, I think this is a win for him in terms of, again, he's got something to build off of here towards the tail end. He's one of those prime candidates for a guy who might have just shut it down after the Open had he lost in the second round to George. Instead, he's going to have the opportunity now over the next couple of months to rebuild for the Australian Open 2020. Talking about Grigor Dimitrov, and he played Alex Dimonor today instead of perhaps Kane Shikori because one of the bigger upsets we've seen here. Dimonor, okay, that's a very tough draw as an unseeded yes. player. He just missed the seed line. But that's another disappointment from Kay here yes. in the tournament where it's now been five years since he got to that now lone singular Grand Slam final. Do you get the sense that he's weary? Yes. Because I get the sense that he's just weary and a bit worn out at this point. 
the way he plays, how physical it is, the toll that it's taking on his body. I got the sense this week that maybe he just didn't have that energy that he would need to get in the second week. And that was just one of what are, that one wasn't almost as shocking as some of the other early losses. Rublev, we talked about the draw he's got. It looks great now, but he made it look great because he beat Stefano Tsitsipas. Yes. So that's a very unfortunate draw for Tsitsipas, but I think you can actually now call his summer a disappointment. Yeah. With the first round loss in Wimbledon and the early loss here to Rublev. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think he's another prime example of scheduling just a little bit too much. A guy who has gone through the wars here through the summer and spring in 2019 and maybe just didn't have the gas necessary at this young age in the fall building towards the U.S. Open, maybe a couple weeks off would have served him just a little bit better. And Dominic Team also an early loser. The fourth seed beaten in the first round by Thomas Fabiano, but he did not feel well. He no. said the press after. So I don't think you can read too much into this. I completely team. agree. But with that said, what I would say is the most surprising loss for all the, the top seeds early on was Karen Hatchinoff. With the way he's played against an opponent who is just coming back from a pretty significant run of injuries right. at Vasek Pospisil. For Hatchinov to fall to Pospisil early on, that is the one that I think is going to go down as the biggest early round stunner. 100% correct. Seeing him in Cincinnati, just up close and personal, where I was courtside for the Kyrgios match, obviously so much was going yeah. on with Kyrgios there, but he looked so supremely confident and ready building towards this U.S. Open to see him lose to a guy. I gave him no shot. Vasek Pospisil, he's been so uh, proactive on, on some of the ATP player right. council moments, but I, I expected nothing from him this week. It's a fabulous win for him, but you're absolutely right. That is the one that I, I think will stick out like a sore thumb here in terms of the really bad loss. Of yeah, that's that was Karen Hatchinov and Brian Clark here with Mike Cation. We are some of the commentators. We've got a great team on U.S. Open Radio, but also we are part of the fun group in the mix with ATP Tennis Radio. But since we're at a Grand Slam, we've got to talk about everything that's going on here. And maybe the talk of this first week has been Coco Goff. Sure. He's here as Corey Goff. She goes by Coco. What a run, a run that's still continuing. She's playing right now with doubles, or with Katie McNally in the doubles. My parents were here today. They certainly <laughs> made plans to go see that. That yeah. was, the, it's the kind of thing right now where you make plans. It's appointment viewing to watch Coco beaten by Naomi Osaka in what almost felt like a good thing for everybody yes. for Osaka to move on as a defending champion. She's the world number one. Right. But just such a promising showing here from Coco Goff at 15 years old. Yeah, the match wasn't too much. Osaka was the better player by far. Um, that being said, the moment, the handshake, the post-match interview that they did together was what people are going to be talking about for the next couple of days. And tennis needs these stories. American tennis specifically needs these stories. You talk about what Serena Williams and Venus Williams meant to a whole generation of Americans, what it specifically meant to Coco Goff's parents and Naomi Osaka's parents for that matter, especially being minorities in this country. It has such an impact. That moment that we saw on Saturday night will have a lasting impact for many years to come. And I think it's one of those things that will resonate for a long, long time. I don't think the casual fan is going to be remembering the scoreline of what we saw, 7-5-6 love. They're going to be remembering what happened, and they're going to be talking about it and potentially getting their kids out onto a tennis court for the first time, much like Serena's and Venus's impact 20 years ago. So I think for Coco to have that kind of a performance on the court and in terms of, if you will, the off the court, that's a success for her. Um, the New Balance 
address what it meant in terms of pictures of tennis courts in the boroughs here in New York as well. Everything about it was perfect, even the way it ended. And so I think that's going to be something that's going to last for a very long time. Yeah, that was absolutely going to be one of the enduring moments sure. of not just this tournament, but yes. when you look through the years here at the U.S. Open. That being said, as we sit here on Sunday almost evening, before we let you go, Mike, what is one thing that you want to see happen over the next week or so? I want to see if one of these, I want to see, frankly, Medvedev. Um, not just because of that heel turn that we talked right. about. I want to see if he's ready. I think that's the big question for me at every Grand Slam at this point on the men's side is just obviously you know the big three, at least two of them are going to be there in the quarters, semis. Is somebody ready to make that jump in the second week and, and have that incredible performance against Novak Djokovic, against Rafael Nadal? I'm ready to see it. I, I think Medvedev is the guy. I don't know if he has enough left in the tanks, but he's the guy who's, I think, the closest to being ready. And we will find the answers out over the next couple of weeks of this tournament. That being said, it is Sunday evening. He's got to play yeah. in, a, in a little bit against right. Dominic Kupfer. So this yes. could all go out the window, <laughs> and you could have your answer as to whether or not he's ready. <laughs> but that is Mike Cation. You can hear from Mike all week. He's commentating on U.S. Open Radio through the official U.S. Open platforms and via the ATP website. It's also not the last time you'll hear from Mike in this podcast. A bit later, we'll hear the interview he did a couple of weeks ago with former doubles player Andre Sa. He is working on behalf of Tennis Australia to gauge the reaction to head of the ATP Cup, the brand new event set to launch in January of next year. The initial 18 teams and the draw are set to take place a week after the U.S. Open. But first, Jill Kravis spoke with the coach of Marin Cilic. We talked about Marin Cilic. We didn't dive right into him, but he's had a nice run here with that big win over John Isner. He is a former champion, still alive as of Sunday night. Jill spoke with his coach, Wayne Ferreira. The reward for beating John Isner, a date in the next round with Rafael Nadal. So Jill started by asking Wayne what they've been working on. Obviously he's a fantastic, unbelievable tennis player. He's made number three in the world and won a slam. I mean, one of six guys in the last 15 years. So he's on, on, a, on a tier above everybody else. I mean, he plays great. Really, he's where he is right now is the first priority is to get the confidence back in win some matches, uh, get the confidence in playing matches, and then once that comes along, he'll obviously start playing better. But we are working on certain things. There's always aspects of the game that you can improve on. I'm working a bit on the serve, a little bit on the forehand, backhand, coming forward, you know, a little aspects of improvements that you can always make. I mean, if you, you can always make him, if you can't make him, then you have a problem, right? So we can work on things. But the first priority uh, it was just playing matches and winning and playing confidently. What in particular, besides having matches and gaining a little bit of confidence, what in particular did you feel like he did better? He's been struggling a little bit when it gets a little bit tight on the trust and belief in himself, you know, because when you lose the confidence, that's the first thing that goes is playing the right shot or doing the right thing at the right time when it gets tight, you know, when you're down a break point, uh, you know, the great, the great guys, the best ones always come up with an ace or come up with a great shot. The ones that struggle a little bit mentally or lose their confidence, that's that's where it's key. It comes down to just one or two points here and there. And especially, you know, when you go into the later stages of a tournament, um, do you feel like that's the key against, like, the top 10 players is just those few points here or there? Every match comes down to just a few. I mean, you you know, when you do the commentaries, uh, which I've done over the last bunch of years, and you look at points one at the end of the matches, and even though it's a 6-4, 6-4, you're looking at three or four points difference in the players. And it comes down to that, but it also comes down to the key points. The key points is 
it's very hard to get an opportunity in a match. You'll get like maybe one break point and uh, you need to use those opportunities wisely and you need to make the most of your little opportunities that you get and that's where the, the guys who do better are the ones when they have that confidence or belief or they do that job, that's the job that counts the most uh, is those really small, vital, important little points here or there. And as a, as a former player transitioning into coaching and also commentating, you've done a lot of that. Has your perspective changed when you watch matches now? Yeah, I look a lot more at, uh, at specific things like, you know, I, I pay a lot more attention to serve, serve and return. Uh, a lot of times when you do commentary, it's amazing actually how many matches are won off the serve. Uh, the percentage of first serve, first serve points won, but more importantly, points won on second serve. Um, you know those little things so you know you can look at the forehands and the backhands and point rally points but generally most of them when you look at points zero to four shots is where most of the points are won and lost and it comes from the serve and the return of serve. You, you mentioned the physical part of it also players getting more into the nutrition and health yeah. is Marin in particular? Yes. What, what exactly is he doing? Is he doing anything particular with his food intake or because obviously there's all this whole you know, craze with the gluten-free, dairy-free, no, all this other he's stuff. He's not getting too in particular about gluten-free and everything, but what he tries to do is he tries to just stay away from fat. A lot of protein and carbs, uh, but stays away from fat as much as possible. And that's sort of his focus is to huge intake of calories through the day, um, but, uh, but, but more carbs and, uh, and uh, protein. But some fats are good for you. Uh, he will have some, but he tries yeah. to stay away from it as okay. much as possible. He okay. tries to get his calories from from others other side. From and from you? The protein I, I eat I eat the fat for him. <laughs> I make up for it. I take I take care of the fat side for him. A way to be a part of the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, uh, listen, you can't leave things out, right? There's a little fat there. has got to, someone's got to take it. So I I take that, but. Uh, no, I mean, I actually, since I've been with him the last couple of weeks, I've started to eat better myself, so it's been good for me too. Oh, good. So you're both good for each yeah, other. Yeah, well, yeah. great. Wayne, thank you so much for joining you're us welcome, on ATP Jill. Tennis Radio, and best of luck. Thank you. Appreciate it. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, and ATPTour.com. It is always a delight to talk to Andre Sa. Thank you so much for your time. You have been an incredibly busy man. Yeah, this yeah it's been a crazy week, but uh, you know we find some time to be here. So glad to be here. happy to be here. Um, I want to talk first just about doubles this year in 2019. It seems like there's just been a resurgence here, really over the last couple of years, getting some more of the top-ranked singles players involved on the double side as well. Did you retire too soon? I'm starting to think yes. <laughs> so I just want to start making a comeback. <laughs> no, I wish. But, but I think you're right. I think the guys, well, they're getting more opportunities to play. So they are actually, like, feeling more comfortable on the double court and really, you know, the thinking that they can improve their game, the, the serve, the return, the volleys, play a different, different style of points. And that it was always in my career. I always liked and enjoyed playing doubles, mm -hmm. even in the early days when I was just you know, playing singles because I, I always felt it helped me. So that's what I think the guys are starting to realize now. And, it, and, and for the game, for the doubles game especially, it's, it's great and important to have the top singles players, you know, trying their, their luck on the doubles court. Your thoughts on what the, the doubles specialists, how do they feel about it? I know they like the exposure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they, I mean, it's, they should like it because if you want to, you know, improve and be better you should be playing against the best so if you can get on the court against you know a top 10 singles player you're always gonna gonna try your best and you know the guy can play 
the guy is going to serve well, the guy is going to return well, and he's going to play well under pressure. So then that means that you have to step up your game as well and, 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 and try to beat that. And it's always uh, uh, the personal satisfaction if you, even if it's uh, on the double score to beat and the guy like Rafa or Roger or, or Novak. So it's it's fun. It's you know it's it's a challenge, and uh, and I think the doubles guys should should appreciate that. Eleven titles to your credit right now. You, you look like you're absolutely in tip-top yeah. shape. I think you could get out there and I mean yeah, maybe for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> I know that feeling. Except mine's only about ten minutes. Yeah. But I, I certainly know that feeling. It has been a very busy week for you. Um, you are here to uh, to work with as a uh, player liaison for Tennis Australia and the ATP Cup. What's the player response been uh, as you've been talking to players? It's this been week? really, really positive, which which is great because you know it's a brand new event, new format. We don't really know. Uh, we don't have any reference from the past how it's going to be. So you know, 24 teams, three different cities playing simultaneous group stages, and then going on to one, one to, to Sydney in, in case to play the final. So it's it's going to be something great, something new. I think it's it's what we need. You know, a, a different uh, event that can bring you know excitement and, and, and teams you know spirit to the to to, to the to such an individual sport. So it's you know it's a lot of work. Because they've got to get all the little details right for the players. Because we, our main goal is for them to to enjoy the event and to come back, and to go out there and say, "Man, this is one of the greatest events I've ever played, and I want to be here every year." So that's our goal in tennis Australia, and that's my my goal here, and that's why we we're working so hard. Is this week much more about the informational aspect and making sure the players are informed about all of those rules and how things are a little bit different? That as well, but mostly we are here doing uh, media content for the draw. Ceremony that is coming up on the, on the September 16th, which is the week after the U.S. Open. That's when we're going to find out that the first 18 nations that are going to play uh, on the ATP Cup. So we just get get some sound bites from the guys saying, you know, how do you feel about this new event? How do you feel about team environment? How do you feel uh, to play for your nation? Which it's always different. You know, we get some different responses, but. It was a great week because we got, you know, most of I think 15 uh, out of the 18 teams uh, to, to to talk to us. So it's it's really good for the promotional side, and and we need uh, the draw ceremony to be big, and we need the event to be big on year one. You know, the the one concern I think a lot of maybe fans might have is the off season. It's it's so short for players uh, to have an event like that at the start of the year. Why have it at the start? Well, I, I guess ATP figured out was the best uh, was the best week to have this because it's when uh, I would say 85% of the top 20 players like to play. So uh, and, and you know they're coming off a break. Of course, you said it, it's a little bit of shorter break now because we also have a, a, a late finish to the season. So you know, but it's, it's their choice. You know, everyone uh, on our side, we, we try to do to make them as comfortable as possible. They're playing for you know huge prize money, huge points, preparation for the Australian Open. You get a minimum of three matches, you know, and you already in Australia. So those are all very positive things that the players uh, hopefully will will show up and, and and compete as as hard as they can. And also coming off of break, you want to play. You want to, you know, you already took like a 20, 30 days off, and then you start your preseason, and then just to. To start playing in Australia is just just the best. What's your transition been like with Tennis Australia? It's been great. I mean, the 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 people, the, the executive team in, in Tennis Australia, they're great guys. I mean, I know Craig Tiley from from many many years. 
and uh, you know for me it's been awesome because I, I get to be on, on the tour still when it's still working with tennis and you know being with the players that's you know all this 22 year career that I had the, the thing that I take the most is the relationship I created you know inside the locker room that's something valuable that tennis Australia saw it and you know just try to to maximize it and try to get the guys to be informed about what we're trying to do and how we're gonna we're gonna do it. Andre Saw speaking to U.S. Open Radio's Mike Cation. We will have full coverage of the ATP Cup for you on ATP Tennis Radio in 2020. For now, though, it's the U.S. Open, and ATP Tennis Radio will bring you full coverage of Week 2 from Flushing Meadows, courtesy of U.S. Open Radio. And be sure to join me, Brian Clark, on next week's podcast when I'll round up all the action. But in the meantime, enjoy the tennis. If you like this podcast, Please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.